Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. We're doing this live. Welcome. This is so cool. I'm like so full of adrenaline right now. It's been so many months since I did anything like this. This is great. All right. Back to what I wrote down. Uh, we are live in Drexel Hall at the Kansas City Irish Center. Thank you to Kimmet Coleman and the Fantastics. Also, this could not, would not, no way it ever would have happened without Mackenzie Mills and Grace Lynch of Wonder Media Network. So if they could raise their hands real quick. And thank you to all of you for being here with that. Ravi, oh, by the way, this is Ravi. Welcome him to Kansas City. <laughs> Ravi, what's going on this week? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for being so welcoming. It's, you know, we circled this date on the calendar. This is the year to the day from the first time we recorded uh, this new phase of the podcast. So uh, it's... It's amazing to be spending this time with you, and it, it kind of marks, I think, like a reopening for a lot of us. Like, I, I can't believe that we're here together. Like, we haven't actually seen each other in person since we started doing this podcast again, and I don't think I've been in a room with this many people <laughs> either since the beginning of the pandemic, so this is, this is a first on many levels. Uh, but in some less exciting news. Uh, we've been talking for a little while, uh, for the past few months, about two things. One is the For the People Act, which is this comprehensive bill to protect our democracy. And then we've been talking about this thing called the filibuster, which is this arcane rule in the Senate that says that you need 60 votes to proceed on any piece of legislation. And uh, those two things collided this week. And uh, the Democrats uh, brought up a vote to move forward with the For the People Act, and it failed because all 50 Republicans opposed it. Now, this was just a vote to proceed on a debate about the bill, uh, and that failed. All 50 Republicans hung tight. Jason, what does this mean for the future of this bill and the future of our democracy? So on its face, not awesome. Uh, <laughs> But what you have to keep in mind is that 
over the last several weeks, like this has been the plan, right? Force them to actually filibuster something. I mean, there's been all this, oh, we know they're gonna filibuster this, it was notional. Force them to filibuster so that it then becomes clear that there are not 10 Republican votes out there for really anything, uh, particularly for voting rights and to save democracy, and to make sure that folks like Joe Manchin understand that that's not the case. Uh, it's important to remember as we go out and, and make the argument for this, and that's still really important, that the very best arguments about this have nothing to do with the filibuster. Like, you're not going to convince I was gonna say like your conservative aunt, but like anybody, based on arcane arguments about an arcane thing, you're gonna convince them by continuing to talk about the merits of the legislation. What is interesting to me is what happened in the last couple of weeks where uh, Joe Manchin went through something that I think the rest of us went through like 12 years ago, which is, you know, he's, he's coming along. Um, we need to accelerate the process, but you know, he, he went through, I don't know if y'all saw this, he went through the olive branch phase, uh, the negotiating phase uh, of photo ID and voter suppression, where he said, well, here's a compromise piece of legislation. And what it was is it, you know, it said, oh, well, we'll have this kind of checking your ID, but it'll allow for all these things to make sure nobody gets disenfranchised. And it's like, yeah, I remember sitting down with the Republicans uh, back in the legislature in like 08 and 09 and thinking, well, you're apparently really concerned about fraud. Maybe we could address it this way without disenfranchising anybody. And like, they didn't say it, but the look on their face was like, yeah, we're not, we're not really worried about fraud. <laughs> we're worried about black people voting. And you had to find that out. You had to put them on the spot. So my hope is, is that as Joe Manchin goes through the many stages of realization about this, that that can be accelerated by understanding uh, that there are no Republican votes for this. And so that's the place. So you just got to keep the pressure on and you got to focus it on making the argument for the legislation. And so that's what we got to do going forward. Yeah, I think I'd probably speak for a lot of people in this room and say that we're learning way more about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema than we ever wanted. Uh, but they're very different, you know. So we spent so much time talking about Manchin uh, because he's been getting a lot of the attention. And he's a tough nut to crack because he comes from a state that's so overwhelmingly Republican and Trump supporting that his politics are just, they're in their own planet. And pressure and threats and all these things don't work on him. And we, we haven't really been spending a lot of time on cinema, who comes from a state where she needs Democrats to turn out for her or she's gonna lose. And uh, she's, I think a lot of people haven't been spending time on her because they, they think that if we got Manchin to come around, she would come around. But she wrote a piece, I think it was in the Washington Post this week, that defended the filibuster. And to her credit, she has explained a lot more about her theory about the filibuster than I've heard Manchin do. So she said a couple of things that should at least make us think. One of those is that she listed out a whole bunch of terrible things that have been prevented because Democrats have used the filibuster to prevent those things. So that was sort of point number one. Point number two is that she said, well, we could pass this voting rights law and then Republicans will turn around and they will not only reverse it, but then they'll punish us by passing something even more restrictive at the federal level than what we've seen. So Jason, does she have a point? No, it's total. It's, <laughs> like, I, we actually, we don't script, we, we like have an outline and we make a point of not knowing what the other person's gonna say. N no, like, and it's frankly endlessly irritating to me. Um, she and I, I, 
until like a few months ago, like I, I, friendly friends, you know, I mean, I'm sure we could still be, but like, I don't get it. I, I, I campaigned for, I don't understand what's happening. She seems like she could be part of our fitness posse, though, for sure. Yeah, was, we have sort yeah. of a thing. Yeah, we, maybe that would work. Maybe we could get her into, like, the text chain about it. And, yeah, that's a good strategy. We'll do that. We'll get on that after this. That could be, boy, we'll save democracy with, with pull-ups and planks, man. Yeah, we could put her on my team. She seems, like, very capable. Well, plus Diana and I are kicking your ass, so you need the help. So... Uh, no, we actually, Diana's been plotting to just fill Ravi with barbecue all week because it helps us. I've actually been with. starving myself for two days because I knew this was coming. She came up to me right before this happened and she's like, you know, we're going we're gonna to feed you tomorrow night because we have like these critical like check-ins that happen every couple of weeks. So I've, I'm Look ready for it. Grace said, no, aren't we relatable corner? And we got it in, didn't we, Grace? <laughs> Anyway, we were talking about... Yeah, what uh, were we talking about? Something Um, more important, probably. She's somebody who... Yeah, the theory is is that as goes mansion, she'll eventually... And look, I'm still with that theory because she's somebody who, like, in a previous life, very aggressively protested the Iraq war and was somebody who was considered, you know, very to the left, not in any way that I disagree with. But So I think that that is right. And as far as what she said... The idea that, oh, well, we could do this now, but then what if they just get elected and then they undo it? Like, please, if they're not in charge with the ability to get rid of the filibuster, and I mean, they're going to do that, like, in a second, first of all. And then second of all, if we don't actually defend democracy from all the horrible things they're doing to try and, you know, counteract what the voters actually want, then that makes it only more likely that they'll be in a position of power to do that. So it makes no sense to me at all. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I'm wondering what evidence she has that when the Republicans take power, they're not going to just do what she's saying anyway. Like, can we be the first people to it at, for once? Like, can we just be the first people to benefit from this? And it also affects the election, right? Like, when you're restricting the vote to the extent that they are, and there's so much attention paid to voter ID laws, redistricting, and all that, and for those of you who are, who are longtime listeners, the thing that worries me the most is the subversion of democracy. It's the results come in, and you have these um, sycophants in these electoral offices who, no matter, it could be a 30-point margin, and they're not going to accept the results. And so, like, if we don't fix that, there, it, that's the game right there. That's the rules. And, you know, um, McConnell has said, you know, if you write the rules, you win the game. He has said this. This is, they're saying it out loud. And demonstrated it. Yeah. And he's winning. He's, yeah. And he's winning. Yeah. So uh, I guess the place to leave this is, well, we're up here, like, complaining about it and, and venting, maybe channeling you, I don't know. Uh, I just, yeah, okay, yes, thank you. What I would say is, um, don't lose sight of the fact that like it's far from over that there there's there's a battle to be had and that the you know that all of us have a role to play in it and nothing nothing's over yeah and quick thing on that is here's where it stands right now is that this was a vote to proceed based on the what we could figure out with the senate it's not completely dead and now schumer has and um merkley um has said that uh They've now given this bill back to Manchin and Sinema to say, now you find 10 people on the Republican side to agree to any change to our voting laws to improve them. And so we'll see what happens there. And there's a huge group of activists. I think it's up to 80-plus groups now who are investing a ton of money and resources and holding a ton of events around the country 
to continue to press for change. And that's all we can do is like either we get something meaningful done or we keep this front of center over the next two years so it becomes something that motivates people uh, to overcome these hurdles so that we can gain margins and actually do something about this. And with that, uh, Ravi, let's do This Week in Misinformation. All right, this is a fun one. So uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida uh, signed a bill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, I might as well, wait, given that I'm in Kansas City, maybe I'll try something. Tom Brady? Yeah. yeah. All right, we're on the same page. We're on the same page. All right. Uh, so Governor DeSantis, uh, you know, they're both Florida residents, I guess, now, right? So um, he signed a piece of legislation that requires universities to give a survey to staff, students, and uh, professors uh, that basically surveys them on their ideological views. Uh, and it's a little murky about exactly what they want to do with this, but they, they've said in some of their statements in and around this bill that they may use this to deny funding or restrict funding or cut funding to universities that they feel are insufficiently ideologically diverse. Uh, there is another uh, piece of legislation that he signed alongside this that says that uh, universities cannot punish and restrict speech that they deem you know, not in keeping with their views or offensive and yada, yada, yada. Um, interestingly, they signed this a couple weeks after banning uh, schools from teaching critical race theory. So they, on the one hand, are saying you cannot restrict speech and we're going to, you know, survey you to say that you have this ideological diversity in the university level, but at the K to 12 level, we're going to tell you exactly the kind of speech that we are not going to allow and the kind of teaching that we're not going to allow. Jason, do you sense any contradiction here? None at all. Um, <laughs> other than, I mean, yeah, there's like the obvious frustrating um, hypocrisy of opposing any sort of program that tries to achieve actual diversity, uh, like racial diversity, for instance, uh, like saying like, that's reverse racism, but making sure that there are some people who think that's reverse racism and think the way we do. That's diversity. Like, obviously, that is super frustrating uh, and possibly persuasive with some people you'll talk to. But I think it's good to have perspective over where this comes from. And what it reminds me a lot of is the preemptive strikes against non-existent problems that we've seen in Missouri. If I go back thinking when I was in the legislature, um, and actually my buddy Don Calloway, who you all have heard on the show before, did a great thread on Twitter about this the other day. He went through some of the similar sort of preemptive strikes of made-up issues that, that we saw when we were down there. Like, I don't know if y'all remember when there was apparently a real problem with all of our laws being converted to Sharia law like 10 years ago. Do you remember that? Yeah. This week, another buddy of mine pointed out that, like, you haven't had Sharia law practiced in our courtroom, so clearly it worked what they did. <laughs> he was joking. Um, but yeah, so they just decided to tell everybody Sharia law is going to be a problem, so we're going to go and we're going to ban that. And then they turned around, and I think the next thing was, I don't even remember, it was, let's, wait, I had to write it down. Oh, it was when they said that the federal government was going to take all of the Gitmo prisoners and move them through Missouri and start putting them in our prisons, so we got to ban that too. So my point is, when 
The Biden administration is taking actions that make it so that 600 of us can get in this room and not feel like it's going to kill us. And people think that's a good thing and the economy is doing well. Then you've got to come up with stuff to prevent and to get mad about is, I think, what's going on there. Right. Yeah. And I think there's like a there's a contradiction between the two things that I talked about. Right. So if you're if you're on the one hand saying that you can't restrict speech that you deem offensive and at the same time surveying people so that you can create the kind of balance that you want, that feels like those two things can't get along, right? Either you want this unfettered, totally libertarian environment or you want to dictate the terms of the debate. You can't really have both. But this is not about consistency. This is about the fact that Governor DeSantis wants to be president of the United States and he's auditioning right now to either be the vice president under Trump or uh, have the ticket. And, and I think we should step back and say that he has been very successful at capturing a huge swath of the conservative base. He is one of the few people, if not the only person out there uh, on the right wing side who has both somehow like availed himself to the, the Trumpers and a pretty significant amount of the never Trumpers, the National Review types, et cetera, um, a little bit of the bulwark types. So he's, He's successful so far, and so I think we, take, we have to take seriously what he sees here. And so if you're being as generous as you could, Jason, like, what do you think his political strategy is? I know it's really hard to bend your brain to think about Republican-based politics, but he seems to be sensing an opportunity. I actually think it's really similar to what people saw across the state line here several years ago when Sam Brownback thought that he was going to be president. And, but it's different. He's... <laughs> Well, people are laughing at the notion, I guess, in, in retrospect. But it was a real thing. I don't know if it was before he became the international ambassador to agriculture in Jesus or whatever he became. I'm pretty close on that title, you have to admit. I don't know. Um, but it was... But his calculation was different. It wasn't necessarily the, the base social uh, issue politics, his calculation was, we are gonna have the perfect utopian uh, pro-business slash no taxes at all environment. And there were people in Missouri, like in the legislature, were like, oh my God. It was actually a lot like the episode of The Office with the Michael Scott paper company, where he just went out and was like, I'm just not gonna charge anything. But then pretty soon he found out, I can't actually stay in business if I do that. And that's what happened to Brownback. But this is different. This is not going to put Florida out of business. So I guess using that, that metric, I, it's, it's at least smarter than what Sam Brownback did. Right. Well, I think like, you know, as somebody who, who, who maybe I can, I can represent the Northeast a little bit here, because I think, at least from my experience, there are things that happen at universities that puzzle me sometimes. Uh, my own university had an incident where like a conservative, not even a Trump person from what I could tell, uh, professor spoke and was shouted down. They wouldn't let him finish and all that kind of stuff. And I think for those of you, you know, a lot of you have members of your family who are either like rigidly independent or Trump supporters or just like F the system type of people. I think you don't have to argue fully that universities are perfect as they are right now and that they're, they're bastions of tolerance, right? Because I personally don't believe that, uh, that a lot of them are. I think that, uh, and both universities I went to have had significant incidents of intolerance within the university, but this is not the solution. And I'll give you one, like, a, there's just so much wrong with this bill, but I'll give you one additional reason why. 
In the bill, they don't even stipulate that this is gonna be anonymous. So you're serving young kids uh, and you're not even putting in the bill that their views are gonna remain anonymous. Just think about how your views changed throughout the course of your university time. Like I knew people who were pro-Iraq war at the beginning and then were anti-Iraq war and pro-gay marriage in the beginning or anti-gay marriage in the beginning, pro, you know, like kids should be allowed to evolve and they should have a little bit of privacy in that. And so I think you could start to, to poke at some of the other elements of this. And then obviously, like another part of this is like, this is not coming from a pure place. It's not like Governor DeSantis and the Republican Party as it currently exists is tolerant of other speech. The most prominent example is Liz Cheney, who for daring to call out Dear Leader was you know, kicked out of her position in Congress and is persona non grata. So this is not a group of people who are tolerant. So you don't necessarily have to seed the case that universities are perfect as they are. Like there's a lot of work that can be done within the center and within the left to push each other to be more tolerant without handing over the keys to the car to people like Governor DeSantis. Well, Jason, I'm about to head out and go to the airport so I can fly to Kansas City. And, you know, every time I fly, even if it's for a short distance, you know, I kind of feel a little bit weird afterwards, you know, just a little tired. But I'm going to take some athletic greens before I head out, and I'm going to take some athletic greens when I land. I found that that's like my magic potion. We love Athletic Greens because it is a daily all-in-one superfood powder. It's your nutritional essential. It is by far the easiest and most delicious nutritional habit that you can add to your health routine today while avoiding the need to take multiple pills or add complex routines. And one tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. And right now, Athletic Greens is offering our audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit our link today. So whether you're looking for peak performance or better health, covering your bases with Athletic Greens makes investing in your energy, immunity, and gut health each day simple, tasty, and efficient. Simply visit athleticgreens.com majority, athleticgreens.com majority, and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you've probably heard us talk about our Helix mattresses. But Helix has walked out of the bedroom and expanded and started making sofas as well. They just launched a new company called Allform, and they're already making the best sofas that we've ever seen. For starters, it's the easiest way you can customize a sofa using premium materials and at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. You can pick your fabric, the sofa color, the color of the legs, the sofa size and shape to make sure it's perfect for you. And they've got armchairs and love seats all the way up to an eight seat sectional. And you can always start small and buy more seats later on if you want your all-form sofa to grow and change with you when you move. That's kind of cool. Yeah, like when if you like if you move out to the suburbs, Ravi, and you you have room for an yeah. eight seat sectional, it's gonna grow with you. I have uh, a chair. It's my reading chair, Jason. Now I've, I've dubbed it. I got it to match the brown leather of the existing chairs I have in this apartment. If getting a sofa without trying it in the store sounds a little risky, you don't got to worry. You get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. They even offer a forever warranty. To find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com majority54. And Allform is offering 
20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority54. And with that, we're going to play a game. And for that, uh, and Grace is going to come up and explain the game, but also we have a very special guest to play the game with us, which is my wife, Diana. It is, by the way, Diana's birthday week. Um, and uh, honestly, like, I've really underperformed on birthday week. Like, we've, we had a live show with lots of stuff to do. And, you know, I mean, so next week, I'm going to crush it for her birthday week. This is pretty good. This is pretty, all right, there you go. Okay, here, let's play a game. All right, so for the live show, we wanted to try something a little different. We've been wanting to do a draft for a while, and we thought, what better place to do it than here? So each person on stage, not counting myself, are going to put on their campaign strategist hats, and they are going to draft their ideal presidential candidate from a list of fictional characters. <laughs> they will have a few seconds to uh, defend their decision, and I expect very complex, well thought out, incredible, brief uh, <laughs> descriptions as to why. And, and we, we really hadn't seen the full list until they, just they now. They saw an extended list, they're fine. And <laughs> we're gonna make it a little hard, okay? All right, so we're gonna get started really quickly. I may, uh, I may also dole out points as I see fit. I retain the right. Okay, we drew straws earlier, and Ravi, you have the first choice. Well, this is really exciting because I know Jason would pick this first. Uh, and I think Kansas City native Jason Sudeikis. Uh, uh, so I'm going to go with Ted Lasso. Uh, and one of the many gifts that Majority 54 has given you is that he came on before the show came out, and you heard first just how awesome that show was going to be. But I, I have an actual whiteboard that I put, like, mantras, and one of them is be Ted Lasso. And, you know, he's just such an inspiring, optimistic, positive person, which I think still can work in politics. But he's just unyielding and stubborn in a, in a way that I think could lead to victory, you know? So that's that's my God. Solid it's hard to argue against Ted Lasso because I feel like we kind of elected Ted Lasso to be president. This time. Yes. Yeah, that's Joe really Biden point. is the Ted Lasso of the last field. I mean, he's like yeah, I very feel like inspirational. President Biden would take uh, a European soccer team the distance. I'm sorry, I are you like. guys trying to help Ravi win this game? Come on. No, look. Look, I will argue against other picks, but I'm not going to... Uh, this is ridiculous. I mean... All right. Well, this is an I have to have some credibility here. Lasso. I can't argue against Ted Lasso. All right, All right. Diana, you're up second. I'm going to pick Kermit the Frog <laughs> from the Muppets. He is lovable. I feel like it's like picking The Rock, uh, who I think it would be a formidable presidential candidate. Like, he has a lot of appeal uh, to... It's very sentimental value, also very inspirational. And, you know, when in trouble, he could go into song. I think it's a terrible pick, I gotta be honest. I love you very much. But he's a frog. Jason does an excellent... I thought that's what he... Yeah. I'm not doing it. Okay. Yeah. Kermit the Frog. Yeah, it's very good. 
Wow, that's a split point for both Diana and Jason. <laughs> rough. It's rough for Robbie. All right, Jason, what's your pick? I'm going Olivia Pope. Um, because I'll be honest, I didn't, I didn't make it the distance on that show. I mean, that was one that I really, I think I got first season. No one has made it the distance on that show. Yeah, right? It was true. It's not meant. And then it just got, I just, I was like, I can't keep track. But all I know is that every episode, things got really hairy every time. And she got people out of it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go Olivia. I just feel like she should be in charge of things. She's an undeniable powerhouse. This is yeah. A, this is a fact. All right, it's a snake draft, so you again. Also, by the way, I love Ted Lasso, but like Olivia Pope would, I mean, Ted, poor Ted. This is compelling. Like, See, this is what I want. Yeah, poor Robbie, Ted. You have a we all know torn. who you would have picked if you had the opportunity to go first. I would so. 100% <laughs> would have picked Ted, but I, anyway. Um, all right, let's see. So it's me again, right? I gotta go. I'm going Dave Kovic, which was from Dave. Uh, because, you know, at the end of that movie, I don't know if y'all remember that movie, at the end of that movie, he's running for city council. And I think we all knew, like, he was gonna be president eventually, like in the sequel or the Netflix series or whatever it was gonna, so I just feel like that's a, a natural, I mean, I was, the most powerful line from that movie is like, well, I get people jobs, that's what I do. I think that'd be a it's solid a weak message. choice. I mean, it's like picking Leslie Nope. I love Leslie Nope, but she's retired for a reason. Not, I think he would have gone to the city council and been like, this is not for me. I agree. He hasn't even won an election, right? How can like you he, pick him? Yeah, he, he's in politics, but he hasn't won. He was just given it, you know? Like, like you weren't going to pick <laughs> Leslie Nope just to suck up to Mike Schur. Like, <laughs> he's not listening. This is for the live <laughs> I audience I was talking to Robbie. It's for, yeah, yeah, it's okay. I got I to, gotta, for the audio people, that was for Robbie. All right, so you're up. We're definitely putting this in the podcast. Okay, but, uh, sorry. <laughs> I'll cut out that bit about Mike Schur. Um, we want him to remain a friend of the show. Diana. I got a little aggressive there. I don't know why. No, no, I, I'm from New York. Him. I didn't even notice it. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm from here, so I immediately apologized. <laughs> Can I tell a funny story about that, just as we're here? Um, I once had a, a girlfriend who met my brother and me at the same time. And some of you know my brother because he was on the podcast. And we just had lunch together. And then all of a sudden, she just started bursting out into tears. And I was like, what's going on? She was like, You're fi like you guys are fighting. And I was like, oh, we're just talking. <laughs> that's, that's how numb I am. I mean, I have a story on the other end of that, which is that when I got to college on the East Coast, uh, I, the first few weeks I was there, people kept thinking that I was this terrible hothead. And they were like, Kander's just trying to fight everybody all the time. And what they didn't understand was that like, where I'm from, if you say some of the stuff that people were saying, you're basically like, we're gonna go fight now. And, <laughs> and so people would say stuff and I'd go like, okay, so like we're going outside, right? <laughs> and they're like, dude, slow down. And, so people thought I just wanted to fight. I didn't want to fight. I just anyway, babe, it's your turn. I'm gonna pick Captain James Kirk. I think he has exceptional leadership uh, potential. He's been to space. People attribute a lot of leadership abilities. And uh, there's aliens, maybe. I think people You've have never a lot watched of questions. Star Trek. <laughs> no, I just think. You've seen the movies. No, no, in real life, there's this report Oh, coming. oh, there's aliens. I thought you were saying in Star Trek there might be no, aliens. No, but like... Oh, that's a very good there point. There might be aliens in the, in, after the next presidential election, so we want someone who's been to outer it space. It could be the biggest issue in the next... 
I have hijacked every podcast over the last three weeks to talk about aliens, and now I've done it again. Plus 1,000 points for Diana. Okay. <laughs> All right, Robbie. Is this snake, so I get two right now? Is that right? Yes. Oh, that's excellent. All right, I'm going to use a little strategy here, because there's somebody I'll, I'll pick, but I, I want to take one of yours. It gives me more satisfaction. So I'm going to go with uh, Mufasa first. And the, you know, this is a little tricky, because he, he, he did underestimate his brother, and he, he has some longevity issues, but he, he invested in his, he invested in the next generation. And he like, I think he like kind of haunted the spirit, like he like spiritually like came back and kept guiding him. So I feel like, and he's like really strong. And I think in case that the Republicans really do make good on their promise to like continue to sow violence, we have a lion on our side. So, um, <laughs> So that's, that's one, and then the second one... A um, dead, you have a dead lion. Wait. Well, he's a spirit of a lion with, a, with good longevity, you know, like... like I don't know that the Republicans would allow for his name to be on the ballot. We haven't done the sort of, the dynasty thing really well, right? You know, the Republicans have been better at that. I think, like, we, can, we could do it. You're, you're, yeah. Your entire pick is about setting up Simba? Is that what you're <laughs> <laughs> We, we only caught the back end of Mufasa's reign. Like, we're only talking about eight years here. I'm, it's, it, I feel like he, he had eight full years. Um, that was an incredible justification of Mufasa. All right. Um, and then I'm going to do Queen Elsa from Frozen. Um, and this is tricky, you know, because she was in isolation for a little while. But what I like about her is that she has, like, incredible power, right? almost too much, and she has to learn how to use it, which, if we're being honest, every leader has to deal with that in some form or another. Uh, but she had self-awareness to, to keep it in check for the good of the people. Um, but when she needs to unleash it, she will unleash it. And, you know, she can really do some damage, too. So I feel... Yeah. Uh, so far, your ticket is Ted Lasso and two cartoon characters. So. <laughs> I thought... That's a strategy. That's, my, that's my team so far. We're going to have to start an offshoot podcast where Robbie just recaps children's movies. In <laughs> <laughs> that kind of same, like, yeah, and then she used that power. You know, I was, just, I was a school <laughs> principal, so I've watched too many children's things for a non-parent. You know? All right, Diana. I'm playing two games. Uh, this, this game that you've created, Grace, and trying not to fall off this chair in front of 600 people. And you're doing exceptional uh, work. I pick King T'Challa. Uh, I feel like it's crazy. It's crazy that I, I get him in the fourth Yeah, it shouldn't round. still be on the board. That's but that's he a was bad king and, and he's the Black Panther. So if there were aliens, <laughs> he could single-handedly lead our forces to confront them. Obvious yeah. choice, impossible to argue with. I have to admit, in the case of aliens, I'm I'm not sure about Olivia Pope and Dave Kovic. I, I, <laughs> I feel like I gotta shore up my alien situation here. You wish you had Queen Elsa now, didn't you? I, I, yeah, now I'm not laughing so much. Also, in the case of another like COVID outbreak, I believe that King T'Challa could like handle like they, well, they handle, got the technology. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Um, all I right. feel like he's prepared on all fronts. Now I got it's a sna- I gotta do two. Yes, you do. Okay, well because of the alien situation, uh, I'm going uh, Palpatine. Um, Look, some, sometimes you got to cross the aisle to work together. Right? 
and, and like, I don't know, he's got the electric thing coming out. I mean, that's pretty intimidating. Um, and going back to the Kirk uh, sort of, anyway, so Palpatine. I'm, I'm not going to further. Um, I'm a little nervous about. About Palpatine yeah. and Pope and Kovic and how they're going to work together. I think they're going to figure it out. Um, and then because I don't know if they can figure it out and they're going to need sort of a really motivational, almost spiritual leader, um, I'm, I'm going Jed Bartlett as well. Like, I knew that'd be a crowd pleaser. Yeah, right but there. he would never get elected. Right now. He's he gonna, barely got elected the second time. I mean, New Hampshire primary, though, he's got a good start, you know? <laughs> All right, Diana, back to you. Hard, hard to pick. There's not that much left. I mean, I'm going to go with Shrek. I wanted to pick Frank Underwood, but I only saw the first season of that show, and then, you know, it got canceled, so. Yeah, and there's I'm gonna other go with stuff there, yeah. Shrek. Shrek is a nice, wholesome choice. And I'm fascinated to hear you define defend Shrek yeah, sure. as the leader of the free world. Um, I think that no matter the challenges that he was up against, uh, he always found a way to overcome them with song. It's really like, uh, my, my draft class uh, is very musically inclined. I would pick the Fantastics also in my, in my draft class. So I do two now? We're doing two and we're gonna, we're gonna round out the list here in this Okay, next great. Pass. So. I, I like, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimistic type of person in politics. I came, came up with Axelrod and, and that kind of hope and change thing, but there, I have limited options now. Um, so I'm gonna do Cersei Lannister first. Uh, and so here's the thing about Cersei, is that this is about winning an election. You know, I, I definitely am, would be worried about what would happen afterwards, but we can be rest assured that she's gonna do everything possible to win. I, like there's one, you know, how many people who watch Game of Thrones? Yeah, a lot of people. Um, there's this scene where Littlefinger, who's like this, you know, not, less than scrupulous character, threatens her in, 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 a, in a very subtle way, sort of. And she has her guard go to put the knife to his throat, and then she stops the guard at the very last second just to prove that she has the power to do that. That's the kind of person she is. Um, so, uh, and that makes you want her to be president. To win, not to be president. This is only winning. This is about winning elections. Uh, and so the, in that spirit, my second is going to be Frank Underwood, who's a similar character. I'm just saying winning. That's all I'm saying. I'm just talking about winning. Uh, Thank you. I really thought I was going to get stuck. That was like, going to be one of the last names. Thank you. I, here's the thing. If the, he was basically winning every season against all odds, and then if it wasn't for Kevin Spacey being a creep, he would have continued to win, but they had to write, they had to write him out of the story. So it, it took like something outside of the, the character in order to stop him. So I, I'm feeling good about our chances if we've got Frank Underwood on that ticket. That's very compelling. And, I right, mean, he was, and you could just argue, like, he was technically a Democrat. I mean, you could, yeah, yeah, that's you, true. You, 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 He's you, the you, most you, successful Democrat in both fictional and non-fictional <laughs> history, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Rapid rise, yeah. I'm going to pick Captain Jack Sparrow because at this point, um, it would just be a really fun campaign to work on. Like, if you were working on Frank Underwood, like, every day you'd be like, oh, my God, we're going to be in you so much trouble. might not live through that campaign, yeah. actually, yeah. <laughs> but, like, if Captain Jack Sparrow is your candidate, you'd be like, who, who knows, you know? Like, this is going to be great. Yeah, voters want to see you having fun. Yeah, you know? I think it would be a great campaign. There's no names left on the list, Grace. There's I one think. name left on the list. There is? Where? 
Uh, who? who Miss Nope. Oh, Leslie no. Nope. She goes last. Oh, yeah, Leslie Nope. You name checked Which, her. Well, the okay. fact that Leslie Nope is last, may I just say, she retired. I have qualms. She's not last. She's my pick. <laughs> <laughs> and look, uh, the best argument for progressive values is progress people can see, and Leslie Nope was getting it done there in Pawnee, so... <laughs> okay. So now I win. Now that we have painfully made them go through this whole list, I now need to hear who you think has the best slate of candidates. So to recap, Ravi has Ted Lasso, Mufasa, Queen Elsa, Cersei Lannister, and Frank Underwood. <laughs> Diana, her musical slate is Kermit the Frog, Captain Kirk, T'Challa, Shrek, and Captain Jack Sparrow. Love I feel captains. really good about that. Yeah, and Jason, good. rounding us out here, has Olivia Pope, David Kovic, Lord Palpatine, <laughs> Jeff Bartlett, and Leslie Nope. So who thinks Ravi has the best slate? Oh, man. Yeah. All right, Diana, and it is her birthday week. And now what about Jason? Ooh, that is rough. We do again. Should we do it? Okay, we're okay, we're narrowing it down. Remember Frank who's your voting. guest? Who's your guest in this city? Is all I'm saying. Who's your guest? Okay, one more time. For Ravi's list. Nice work. Is this Is this an appropriate time for me to throw my very limited support behind Diana? Would that be <laughs> Well, you can, you can woo into your microphone. <laughs> See, this is against all odds here. Stay strong. You don't have to cheer I twice. I am the only person on stage creating more Kansas Cityans. That's all I'm going to say. Not, not currently. Yeah. Just like in right. It wasn't like an announcement. It's just... And really quick, Diana's list. I'll take a tie. I'll take a tie. This is fine. What? I'll take a tie. I'm happy with that. Ravi has won the game. Oh, Oh, I want to say... So sorry. I just want to say that this is not... This is the first of two victories that I'll be celebrating in Kansas City because we're going to be coming back. The Bills are going to be playing here. Um, No. So we can celebrate that. No. We can celebrate that together, too. No. Should we reboot? I was waiting. I wanted to wait to get that vote over with before I did a Bills joke. I did say I had the right to declare takeaway points, and that's minus 10,000 points. Diana wins the game. Kelly Corrigan Wonders is just the podcast we all need right now. It somehow manages to both validate what you're feeling and truly stretch your thinking at the same time. The show drops new episodes every Tuesday morning, and there are currently more than 40 episodes available covering everything from human nature and racial justice to grief and societal change and love stories. Guests include heavy hitters and big thinkers like Melinda Gates and George Saunders. She also introduces you to incredible stories from people you've never heard of and now can't stop talking about. 
And while the episodes cover topics that are far from light, they are explored in such an approachable, honest way that the door is open for real contemplation and transformation. Oh, and laughter. Kelly manages to be both poignant and hilarious at the same time. From what it sounds like, listeners love this show. It's got 4.9 out of 5 stars from 900 reviewers who are saying things like, I'm so encouraged and challenged by this beautiful podcast. Kelly's wit and wisdom challenge me to think critically and make me laugh. She's insanely relevant and hugely refreshing. So if you're looking for a really fulfilling listen, head over to Kelly Corrigan Wonders wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, that was awesome. Um, all right, Grace, I believe we're going into a Q&A portion. Okay, great. She's holding several clipboards. She's pulling questions out of her body. This is impressive. All right. Uh, thank you, Diana. For... Okay, uh, this question is from Baxter Yarbrough, and now we will fill time. I just want to take back what I said about the Bills. Because <laughs> no, because in all honesty, your team seems to have gotten the vaccination thing right, and my team seems to be struggling with it. So you win the moral victory, at yeah. least, so far. And yeah. also the last time they played, but you're right. Yeah. yeah. Last two times. Yeah, last two, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No. Can you all hear me over here? Uh, to y'all's right, dead center. There we go. Oh, okay, there you move. Okay, yeah. so uh, I am a teacher in actually in Mitch McConnell and Thomas Massey's district in Northern Kentucky, um, and so with that, I have a lot of students that come from not just like conservative backgrounds, but are in households that, um, you know, just get fed a lot of misinformation in some way or another. And so for me, I I'm just wanting advice in general on how to talk to. Um, like for me as a teacher and also for anybody else that works with youth, how do you discuss current events and anything of that sort uh, with like the young people in our society, particularly when, you know, they're being, they're living in a place where the words that I'm saying as a teacher might be combated and, you know, put in the trash. What subject do you teach, you said? Social studies. Social studies. This is going to be you. But. This is Ravi's wheelhouse, so I'm going to step back what from a second. What grade, by the way? Uh, ninth and 10th grade, so 14, 15, 16-year-olds. Right. Can I ask a follow-up question just to narrow, narrow it down a little? Like, is your goal to persuade, or is your goal just to sort of, like, stop the crate, like, just kind of like, have them actually learn what's really happening? So it's more so the latter of the two, but also, like, I thinking a lot about like the ethical bounds I have as a teacher not wanting to like overstep by any means and making it where my views are being pushed onto my students by any means. Um, what a perfectly themed question to go with our misinformation thing. So Ravi, yeah, go at it. I think you know you're you're already in some ways given a gift in that as a teacher, you know, you you no matter what your views are, you generally aren't allowed to 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 push your students to have any certain kind of politics. And, but in some ways that's helpful and, and it's helpful that you teach social studies because all the critical race theory debate aside, which we're gonna talk about next week, there are so many tools at your disposal in our history. And you know, there's this book I keep mentioning called These Truths from Jill Lepore, but there's so many books like this where you have good foundational texts now that have been coming out over the past 10 years, some of which like These Truths are not 
controversial at the moment that you can use to teach people, for example, like Jason and I were talking about, that there's evidence that George Washington, for example, what, what do you think you know about George Washington's teeth? That they're wooden, we hear all these things, right? But Lepore argues, and there's some dispute about this, that they were pulled from the mouths of slaves, right? So like that's a lesson right there, is to say, you don't have to go all the way and say in that lesson, and therefore, America is blank. The students can put two and two together, right? Um, you can say, all right, let's picture this, let's visualize it, let's think about what that means uh, and you don't have to, to, to add it up for people. Um, you, you can pick those examples to say, we love our country, but there are things about this country that, are, that happened a long time ago that are super relevant to the problems that we have today, and you can kind of let them thread the needle with some really well thought out examples and lessons. Awesome, yeah. I'm not gonna add anything, that's great. Thank you all. Kelly Jones has a question. All right, right down here, right here. Um, this was actually sent to me by a friend while we were waiting outside. So there is a clip making the rounds on um, right-wing social media of President Biden um, saying that citizens would need um, F-15s and nuclear weapons to take on the government. And she was questioning it in the sense of, shouldn't we be afraid about the size of government um, if this is the case? And so I was just wondering how you would respond to questions about the size of government, especially related to um, the Second Amendment and gun rights. And what was the thing? It was is Biden. It was in the um, in the gun control speech about the new restriction or the with um, with Garland. Um, but he said something that's kind of a joke about how citizens would need F-15s and nuclear weapons to take on the government. All right, okay, I see. Yeah, I mean, basically he's trying to, thank you for your question. Um, he's basically going right at that Second Amendment argument that we, we need these arms because we gotta stand up to the government. He's saying like, but you don't have F-15s and nuclear weapons, so he's just kinda undercutting that argument. Um, and then, yeah, I think the response that the right uh, takes to that is they say, well, isn't that messed up? You know, and then what they, because they've tried to do this to me when I've made similar comments, uh, then they're like, hey, and like, there's some people who just come at me with this over and over. Remember that time that Candor was like, we should use, you know, tanks against our sin? It's like, no, 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 hey, no slow down. It's not what I said. Um, so I think if you're going to go down the road with people, it's important to remember that, like, at the time that it was written, that the Second Amendment was written, like, it was muzzle loaders, and it wasn't as if the government had tanks, right? Like, I mean, the, the concept of people standing up, like, it was an actual thing that could happen, right? In fact, it had just happened. Like, which is, we're about to celebrate July 4th. Like, it had just happened. And so, to me, it's like, you gotta just push it aside by saying like, okay, we live in a really different world now, and the reality is, is that factually, he is correct. Like, factually, if you were going to overthrow the American government, you would probably need more than what you have, right? Like, so I think just, like, get everybody as best you can on the same factual basis. And then, like, around here, to be honest, look, if you are dealing with somebody who's like, I have guns because I have to stand up to the government in case, like, you know, 
perhaps you won't persuade them. But, <laughs> but what you can do around here is you can get real with them and be like, look, I understand what you're saying, but isn't it really just that you, you like guns? Like, that's what I do when people do that. I'm like, I'm, because I'm pretty versant in guns, I can be like, you know, I'll be honest, like, I like them too. You know, I mean, I'm not, I, don't, I don't like the idea of everybody having them, and I don't like the idea of everybody having assault weapons, and I'm against that stuff, but like, yeah, like, I'll go shoot, you know? I'll go out and target shoot. Like, to me, and I'm not saying everybody in here can connect that way, but if somebody is persuadable and they're saying that, then the only reason they're persuadable is that under the surface, they really just, they like guns. So let's like have a normal gun conversation instead of a conversation about the government using F-15s against us. Yeah. But there's something he's getting at, though, that I find useful, maybe not that particular person, but I'm trying to talk to people about the Second Amendment, is that, you know, it's written, it was written before, as Jason said, all these arms exist, and it says a right to bear arms, and literally within the definition of arms are nuclear weapons. And so I use that as a starting point in a conversation of people to say, I'm not going to convince you about the meaning of well-regulated militia in the Second Amendment, right? even though conservatives used to believe that that was limiting. Even Robert Bork and Richard Nixon thought it was limiting um, and were, would be way to the left of uh, the Republican Party today on these issues. But what I do say is as somebody who's arguing for the right to bear arms as a pretty laissez-faire piece is like, do you think I should have a nuclear weapon? Do you think the Antifa protesters, right, should have nuclear weapons? No. So then you think that we should be able to restrict the right to bear arms in some way, because those are arms. So everybody is interpreting this in light of today, and that's the difference between our philosophy on the Supreme Court and theirs, and that's why I find it such a useful example, because rarely can you just pull out of your head an example that can actually help frame a conversation, because usually like the amount of misinformation and insanity, you have to have Google out and be like, all right, like I, you said this, I'm gonna write this down, I'll come back to you in a week. That's a very pure example, because nobody sane thinks that everybody should have nuclear weapons. And at that point, they've opened themselves up to the very thing you're doing, which is you're calibrating how many arms. And so that at the point, it's not about the Constitution, it's about personal preference. Okay, we got four more. Uh, first one, Brooke Roberts. Okay, so I grew up in rural Kansas, and I went away to college in the East Coast, where a lot of my friends still are. And I, my question is more on the flip side. Instead of trying to convince my mom down in Kansas why she should be progressive, oftentimes my arguments are with my very liberal friend, friends, friends, I've almost been country there. Uh, <laughs> um, my liberal friends are all very much about like, ugh, middle America, you're like the only good one, Brooke. Like, let's just ignore them. Why waste our time and energy? So my question is more, how do you respond to your very liberal friends who think this place is not worth their time? You go first, because you live yeah, there, and you've it's lived interesting. Yeah, I, else. And you know, background, for those of you who don't know, is I grew up in Staten Island, which is like, it's like an interestingly representative more of a place like Mississippi and its politics than the rest of New York City. Uh, but I lived in Nashville, I lived in Mississippi, so um, I think about this a lot. You know, first thing is, in some cases, it doesn't matter that much. Like what my friends in Williamsburg, for example, think of my friends in Kansas City. It's, it's relevant every so often. Uh, 
But, and in some ways, it's almost the opposite problem. It's like they're phone banking into your neighborhoods and causing trouble. Uh, so it's a thing that we've, you know, try to like channel people's like well-intentioned energy into ways that are useful. It's not always easy. Uh, I would say even within New York City, so we had a mayor's election, right? I can just, I'll use this as a metaphor. I had a hard time convincing people in one neighborhood in New York City to understand what was happening in the other. Like, we, we, had, we have Eric Adams as mayor because of a phenomenon that happened within the city, which is that Williamsburg and Park Slope and Upper West Side, Upper East Side, um, have this certain bubble, this certain view, not all those people, but enough, uh, a view of, of what the city was. And they were shocked when Staten Island and East New York and Bronx uh, voted overwhelmingly for somebody that they couldn't stand in those other neighborhoods. And it was our own mini version of this, which is like, I think like from a, from a first principles perspective, it's like, at the, even at the level of uh, trying to channel some of your energy into understanding people who live in different areas and you before you even try to do anything about it, right? It's just like spend time in those places, talk to them, understand what makes them tick, and it's and don't do it as like an anthropological experiment so that you can like, you know, go back and tell your friends about it. Like figure out if there's a way you could genuinely connect because I think like the people I know who who, who really had good friends in the outer boroughs weren't even the least bit surprised about the outcome this week. And the people who couldn't imagine going to Staten Island were completely shocked. So I think there's two things here. The first is, there's just the math, right? The first argument is like, well, if you want to like win elections nationally, you kind of got to work on convincing some people where I live and help me do that. Like, that's the first, like, we're kind of all in the same country. The second is like what I think is the undercurrent to this question that's almost bigger than that part of the country being hopeless. Diana and I were talking about this the other night. There's this thing now and it's, I think, a problem within the left where there's this emotional reaction to people, particularly if people voted for Trump twice, anybody who fits that category, to people going, you know, that there's some sort of moral compromise involved in trying to convince that person. That if you campaign to that person, then you are in some way giving quarter to racism and to fascism and all those things. And I get where people are coming from, but when I hear that, it mostly comes from places that are not this place. Or if it comes from anywhere in the Midwest, it comes from like very, very blue sort of islands in the Midwest. And my answer to that is always like, Okay, but we still live around those people, right? That's the first thing. But that's often not enough because people are like, yeah, but there are a lot of other, you know, but yeah, you do, but you don't have to give quarter to that. And my argument is this. It's like if you think about it like politics and you think that how you define yourself morally is defined on whether or not you will associate with people who disagree with you that way, okay, I see your point. But if you think of it like somebody who wants to win elections, you should think about it like you're spreading religion. Because if you are spreading religion, and if that religion is liberal politics or progressivism, well, if you are going to do it successfully, then you got to go and save the hardest souls to save. And so I don't think of it, and this is what I tell people who say that, I don't think of it like uh, convincing people to agree with this. I think of it in convincing people who maybe they have a major character flaw, maybe whatever, I don't know, and, and probably they've said horrendous and offensive things, I don't think of it that way. I think of it as, I love that person and they need saving. And th that's what I would say to your friends. Ashton Botts.
Also, a brief reminder to anyone who has had their question read aloud, you can get a free t-shirt. So come see us. How exciting. All right, go Ashton. Hi, thanks so much. Ravi, thank you for introducing me to Arena Academy. Oh, which I, one did you do? I did the organizer track. Uh, which? Just, just this oh, wow. two weeks ago. I oh, just amazing. finished. Amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. With that experience, something that really resonated with me and a question that has continued to be in my mind over the last couple of weeks is I'm, I live in Missouri, I live in Kansas City, and we vote for progressive policies. We've voted for the expansion of Medicaid, we have voted against the right to work, but we can't seem to bridge the gap between those progressive policies, which the majority of us have gotten on board with, and the progressive candidate that represents that policy. And I feel like if we can't bridge that gap, if we can't make that connection, that we aren't going to be able to make meaningful progress. So how can we have those conversations to bridge that gap and connect the dots? Sure, so uh, it's a great question and it is like a major problem. And at the end of the day, it's a bit of a branding issue, right? And, and I don't, I'm not trying to minimize it, but how many of you, by a show of hands, uh, live, like in your neighborhood, you think, I don't think I live around any Republicans. Like, okay, there's, a, you know, not the majority of hands, but there's a fair amount of hands up considering that we're in the middle of the country, right? My point is, there are bubbles everywhere, right? And if you're in a rural part of the state, there are Democrats, but they go to jobs, they go to places where they feel, they don't feel, you know, safe about, like, saying that that's what they are. They may not feel as uh, comfortable putting out that yard sign and that kind of thing. And so that's where the branding thing comes in, is that what happens is people go, like, before they even understand anything about politics, before, like, if, if they're at the point where they're thinking about policy and they're thinking about one party or the other on policy, then honestly, at this point in America, they're, like, pretty into politics. I mean, if we're being real, right, most people have, going back to my answer from a minute ago, a lot of, most people are, at this point are sort of inheriting their politics the way they're usually inheriting their religion, right? They were brought up in it. And so what happens is they look around and they go, well, I guess I'm this because that's what everybody I know is, right? Now, here's the thing. Like, you can be frustrated about that, but I, and if you close your eyes and think about this for a second, you'll be able to picture also, I could think of several people in my life who are Democrats who... I don't know if they would have been if they weren't surrounded by Democrats, right? And that's just what the people around them are. And the same thing happens in rural areas. So it goes back to people like those policies, particularly when it's an objectively put question to them. And it goes back to the fact that we are in this situation now in a state like Missouri and a lot of other states where we have a choice to make. We can fight over who's going to be in charge in the cities, which is the area they continue to you know, not be able to rest away from us. We can put all our energy into that, and we can have arguments about whether or not you're progressive enough and that kind of thing. And I'm not going to say or. I'm going to say or only in the sense, or we can decide to do both, because that's fine to do, right? Or we can recognize that we have to keep making the case everywhere else too. If you stop making the case and you stop making people comfortable being a Democrat, being a progressive in places where there may not be as many, then it's going to diminish more and more and more. And that's why like, you, because the other thing is functionally, 
if you're only fighting for power in the areas that they allow you to continue to have power in, look at what's happening in the debate right now in Kansas City over police funding, right? There's not a single person in the legislature who's trying to stop what Mayor Lucas is doing who actually, like, the majority of their district is Kansas City. What that is an example of is the Republicans getting so much power that they're like, and now we'll tell you what to do and how much power you can have. So if we forget to continue to make the case in places that we don't absolutely control, then we will lose more and more ground until we don't even control the areas we control now. So my point is, the, I guess the answer is, it doesn't matter what the odds are, you have to go out and affirmatively make the case on all of those issues all the time, even when you're not winning those elections. Yeah, I think it also depends on like what level, right? So just picking like the easiest to discern, which is presidential, right? Why did we, you know, take down Romney so effectively, for example? It's because he was so perfectly uh, representative of this out of touch kind of stiff elite uh, that wanted to protect his own um, fortune and, and couldn't relate to the average person. And I think we fooled ourselves when we got Trump into thinking that he was similar in, in the way that people viewed him. And I think what we missed was that he was a cultural symbol more than anything else. Like, Romney was a cultural caricature, like almost if you're like in a movie trying to cast this person, like he was perfect. Yeah. Whereas Trump, you know, I think people, they, they, they look at the dollars and cents and forget the way he was acting sent a message, and I think we were late to figure out how people were interpreting that. And obviously, there was a, a segment of people that that had straight up racial interpretations of it, and those are people who were never going to win. But there are a lot of people I know who are like "f you" to the system, and they're just so fed up, and they feel like the world is—they're losing track of everything that's happening. Everything's happening fast. They feel like there's this party that's happening at the expense of them. Like, this is why the Gavin Newsom breaking his own protocols to hang out in a, rest, a fancy restaurant is, I'm obsessed with these examples because they may be trivial, but the average person sitting at home is like, I don't care if you cancel everybody's rent, uh, Gavin Newsom, I'm gonna remember you with your slick back hair sitting in a fancy restaurant while I can't even go to the park. And we as Democrats need to remember that, like, the anecdotes, the Republicans, they make us eat them. Like, we just cannot screw these things up. And so it's not that we just can't make mistakes. It's that we have to, we have to tell stories. Anecdote, the, the, the Republicans are taking these anecdotes, and they're blo like a good trial lawyer. They're, just, they're closing strong on little things that they make into big things. And we are like getting the big things right, but getting the little things wrong. Like, we're like, all right, we're, you know, this year we passed legislation that dramatically improved the lives of poor people in this country. Now, are we going to close on an argument in the next election that tells that story effectively, more effectively than, you know, some university professor getting shouted down in a room? Like, like, can we win this argument? You know, this is like, this is why Obama was effective, is that he was a storyteller, and why some of our candidates do better than others is not because they necessarily have good policy or not, but they're able to weave together a story that's compelling to the American people. Yeah. You know, you all have probably heard me say this way too many times, but like every single issue is about one thing, four things that relate to one thing, which is everybody just wants their family to be happy, healthy, safe, and nearby. And in places like rural Missouri, rural anywhere, but not even rural, just places like Kansas City, 
all anybody really wants, right, left, center, is we're just trying to make it so that our kids don't have to like go somewhere else to get a good job because we just want to be around our family. And like the child tax credit, all, of, all these things we do, we don't actually have to call it the child tax credit. We don't actually have, we could just be like, hey, you know, Biden did a really good job making it less likely that my kid has to leave. And, and I think that that's, I mean, the thing is in Roman, like here, we're all worried like our kids are gonna have to go to New York or wherever. And in Warrensburg, they're worried that they're gonna have to go to St. Louis. And it, you know, and it's just everywhere you go, that's the case. And we gotta speak to that. So uh, thanks for the question. Uh, Lita Gentry. Grace, are we okay on time? I got one more after this. The last one is also a gift to Ravi because I didn't let him do Aren't We Relatable Corner. Yes. All right, so the one after this, this is, is... what we called Quarantine Corner before, which mm-hmm. is a running battle between um, me and Grace about whether we can keep it in the outline every week. <laughs> so. Hi, um, my name is Lita Gentry. Um, my question was about how do we help the... I don't want to say like older generation military, but more of that institutional military come towards the middle. Um, in my eyes, I'm thinking like my dad who served the military for 35 years. And when you talk to him one-on-one, super liberal. When it comes to the voting booth, not at all. So where do we start? So like, let's unpack it a little. So when you say you talk to your dad one-on-one, super liberal, like what kind of stuff is he like? Well, yeah, I agree with that. Recycling, gay rights, um, relative gun control believes that it should be similar to driving a car um but outside of that he doesn't want you to touch his money at all so but you kind of put the question in like like sort of how do you convince the veterans um is your dad's friends or most of them republican he lives in rural missouri Uh so So, i would say so as far as he knows yes yeah Okay, um, so I'm gonna take a step back and do the broader part of the question, like basically the military community uh, convincing folks. So, and I apologize, this is a riff some of you have heard before, but you gotta start with the fact that um, it's not that folks are in the military that they are therefore conservative, right? The military, if you showed me any workplace where four out of five people there are are men, not women, and they're disproportionately drawn from the South and the Midwest, I would say the majority of people in that workplace are Republicans. That's how they were raised, and, the, and so that's, that tends to be why, right? Now, your dad living in rural Missouri is sort of evidence to my point, right? Um, so, good news, because I get this question a lot, good news, it's not a secret strategy or some silver bullet about convincing the military. It is much simpler than that, really. It's about convincing that demographic of people who fit into that. And if you look at this last election, where at least, I don't remember, I didn't get to look at the exits on this, or I wasn't interested enough, I guess, to look at the exits on it, because we won. But the uh, polls beforehand showed that for the first time in a long time, the majority of active duty military were actually voting for the Democratic candidate which is a big, big deal, not because they're military, but because that means a a demographic that overwhelmingly comes from those roots that I mentioned decided to turn against those ancestral roots. My point is, they are persuadable, and when I talk to folks about it, if you wanna go with that route, what I always say to people is like, look, when we were in the military, we were in a socialist world. Like, 
We lived in a, with three squares a day, housing paid for, and then they say, and they're not wrong, and they say it with a fair amount of indignance, yeah, I was serving my country. And I'm like, yeah, you were. But do you think some of it worked? You know, like, I'm not saying you got to make an argument for socialism, but like, some of that was pretty organized, right? Like, some of that worked pretty well. So I start with that, and then I just go into a much more emotional argument, which is like, hey, look, you joined the military because you believe in, like, taking care of other Americans and trying to protect them. And even if you aren't going to convince them with this, you can at least relate to them by saying, like, I just want you to know, like, I really appreciate that. And that's, my politics are about that. Like, I just care about people even if I've never met them, which I think is what you were trying to do in the military. So maybe with your dad, maybe say, like, hey, dad, like, you know, I know you don't want anybody to touch your money, and I understand, and we have a different idea about taxes and that kind of stuff. But just so you know, dad, like, mine comes from the fact that there are people that we don't even know who I think, you know, maybe they could use a little extra, a little, a little, a little hand up. And, and so just like you were doing to try to protect them in the military, something like that. Yeah, amen to that. And I think that the, the, the frame of service in general, like there's so many voters out there that are just begging for purpose. Like, you know, so much of our politics is exhausting. It's soul sapping. And, you know, to engage in politics in America today is to inherently close yourself off in some ways from other people. Like that is the default. Uh, and I think in a situation like that, I try to think about like, can we get to a rhetoric that is the you know ask not what your country can do for you rhetoric that that resonates with with military folks it resonates with the people in the medical profession teachers etc. It's harder to get through to people on this than ever before by almost every metric we're more individualistic less communal less trusting of institutions than we've ever been before but we need to be the party that that asks people to recommit to those institutions and I think and those communities and those bonds and I think the delicate dance here and I'm guilty of not getting this right all the time is that in order to do that, we have to be tolerant of the journey, you know, as we've talked about. And I think our party struggles with this right now. The Republican Party has given up on it, to be clear. But like our party, I often hear people using language about people's immutable characteristics or where they are and closing them off from the conversation or limiting the way that they can participate because you're X, you're rural, you're white, you're black, whatever. Like, I'm in so many rooms where people are described before you even get to know them, and they're put into a certain box about how they're gonna participate, and people pick up on that. And so, like, for instance, if you're not for universal health care, heck, if you don't even love Medicare, but you care about our democracy, and you're just angry about the, the Republican subversion of the democracy, and you're like, I'm gonna prioritize that before anything else, and, and I look forward to the day when, when I can oppose you again when it's pocketbook issues, but I'm just so scared for our democracy that I'm gonna you know, like lock arms with you and support your candidates. I want that person to feel welcome, like in our party, even if we disagree on 90%, if it's 10% and they're willing to come in our direction, the least we can do is be civil with them because they're giving up 90% of their agenda. It's not like we're gonna bend our agenda to them. It's just about being civil and, and giving them a seat at the table to be a part of what we are. But our democracy needs that because we can't afford to, to, to exclude people right now that way. Like we need every single person. We literally needed every person in this last election to win that election. All right, this last one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. This last one is great. 
Cameron Breen, I think. Is that right? What did, what, what did Grace? I'm looking at Grace right now. I feel like something. I'm getting this set up with something right now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a Sorry, totally Bobby. reasonable question. Here you go. I mean, it is. It is. Uh, this is like a long-running joke that a friend I did Teach for America with and I have. Uh, he lives in Williamsburg, and we're always watching all these movies and TV shows and seeing these extravagant places. Um, so what he wanted to know was, as a former educator and every man, such as yourself, Robbie, how, how do you live in such a friends-esque apartment? And how can you go on all these amazing surf adventures? Uh, mostly because he wants to know how to do it himself. Um, but we ended with much love from former educators, and we really appreciate what you do. Honestly, we have like weekly phone calls recapping y'all's podcast. So it's, it's fun. New York to Kansas City connection for us. You know, it's funny. I've always thought about, like, of, of the, if I were ever to write a book, it would be about, there's this book that, uh, there's this book called What, what I Was Doing While You Were Breeding. Has anybody read this book? Yeah, so it's about somebody who's a, a woman who, who worked, I think, for a tech company or something and kind of made the choices I made, which is, like, Jason and I, though very good friends, part of the, the shtick is that we're basically the same age, but live very different lives, right? So like, you know, I'm single, I'm traveling, but that's, that's the thing is like, I do okay. I'm not like, you know, I don't do crazy well financially, but I'm, I'm like, I, I, I do enough. And I don't spend a lot of money because I don't have kids and I don't have stuff. So I like prioritize going to the right places. My apartment is just, it's, a, it's being in New York long enough to know where the good places are and then striking during a pandemic when you have negotiating <laughs> leverage. But, well, you know, come to New York. I'll have you on the roof. It's, it's, I love the place. Uh, and thank you for the question, though. I, I'm flattered. Thank you. All right, that was awesome. Uh, before we go to Grab and I just want to say, because it is the anniversary of us doing this, uh, rebooting the show and bringing it back, and with Ravi here, you know, I... If it weren't for Robbie, I would not have brought this back. Um, so I, it, it means a lot to me. It's, you know, I, in the months before that, I was like, I kind of want to do this again. But I'll be honest, I was like, I'm not hungry enough to go do it by myself again. And Diana did all the work the first time around, like edited the episodes and found the guy. And like, we were both like, oh, we don't have time for that. And then Robbie and I were having these conversations on the phone all the time. And I was like, hey, man, like, if you'll do like a lot of the work, like almost, like all, if you'll do like all, I was like, like all, like, so like, you know, if this wasn't already obvious, like Robbie writes the outlines, right? And then I just come in and I'm like, duck, duck, hey, I got, you know, like, here's an anecdote and here's a folksy saying and like, you know, cut print. And, and so uh, it's been a really fun year to do this again. And with the team from Wonder, with Grace and Edie, who's not here and, and everybody there. Um, so just, you know, with the first audience we've had, or I've had in forever, and the first audience the show's really ever had, I just wanted to say thank you to Ravi and to everybody else. It's been an awesome year. And, uh, yeah. uh, and with that, we'll do Grab an Oar, which, you know, look, we thought about it beforehand. We just said, look, 600 of you came out to watch us have a conversation, uh, which is incredible. And if 600 of you can do that, then like I hope all of you have an idea as to which local candidates you plan to be working for over the next year plus. Like, because if you can come out and listen to us or watch us have a conversation, 
You can definitely do that. So that's the Graminor for everybody. Uh, because this is an audio product, I gotta remind everybody who will listen to this tomorrow morning that the voicemail you can call in is 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. We welcome all questions about Robbie's living situation. Um, <laughs> I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. There you go. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.